Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 is our text for this morning. Our text for this morning reminds the Christian what it is that he or she has been saved from, but these three same verses remind the non-Christian what it is that he or she needs to be saved from. In chapter 1, Paul described our spiritual possessions in Christ. We, we spent many weeks looking at all the blessings that have been secured and procured for us by the Lord Jesus Christ. All of our spiritual possessions. Here in chapter 2, Paul now turns to a complementary truth, namely our spiritual position in Christ. Who are we in Christ? And before he gets there, he has to tell us who we were outside of Christ. And that's what we'll look at this morning. Our text for this morning, if it stood alone, would leave us hopeless. While there's good news coming in verse 4, we'll be there next week. Good news isn't good news unless there's bad news. Good news, by definition, requires that there be bad news. Let me illustrate. Imagine with me for a moment that you and I are seated next to each other on an upcoming flight. We exchange brief pleasantries as we cram our personal belongings under our seat. We buckle up and we haphazardly listen to the safety instruction and the demonstrations of the cabin crew as we're sitting there thinking to ourselves, yada, 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 let's get this show on the road. As the aluminum tube with which we have voluntarily strapped ourselves to breaks contact with terra firma, we become airborne. I slightly nudge your arm, rousing you from your light shut-eye. Having gained your attention or slight attention now, I offer you a brand new parachute and encourage you to wear it for the duration of the flight. Of course, you think to yourself, that guy sitting next to me has gone mad, and so you politely decline. But as you sit there listening to the engine's dull roar, you begin to think, who is this guy? Who brings their own parachute on a domestic aircraft? Why does he have a parachute for me? Why is he wearing one? What will others think of me if I put this on? Should I be wearing one? You quickly dismiss those thoughts, convinced that there's no need to worry. But if, on the other hand, I were to have leaned over and said, My friend, I need to let you know that I was present with the pilot during the pre-flight check. And as we walked around the aircraft at the gate, I noticed that multiple rivets securing the aircraft's horizontal stabilizer. For those of you uh, who... Don't know much about aircraft. That's, that's the tail section of the airplane. An airplane can fly without a lot of things, but an airplane can't fly without that tail, uh, known as a horizontal stabilizer. And I tell you that as I walked around the aircraft at the gate with the pilot, I noticed that multiple rivets are the securing fasteners that secured that aircraft's horizontal stabler to the fuselage were missing. I would have your attention for sure. and You probably would have put that parachute on without a second thought. You see, good news isn't good news unless there's bad news. And that's just one of multiple illustrations that we could have used to make the point there. This morning, Paul takes us to the graveyard of humanity. As we look around, we see headstone after headstone with the etched epitaph, dead in trespasses and sins. But we must walk through the graveyard if we're ever going to appreciate the good news of the gospel, that is, namely, that Jesus Christ saves guilty sinners and gives them new life. Hey, by the way, side note, have you ever considered what you want on your epitaph? Jesus Christ saves guilty sinners and gives them new life. That is great news. 
Paul is going to burst forth in exuberant praise beginning in verse 4, but he takes the first three verses of chapter 2 to first give us the bad news, that we might appreciate the good news, the saving gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. With that being said, by way of just a little bit of context, let's turn our attention to our text for this morning. We have you stand if you are available with us this morning. Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, pens the following words. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. You may be seated. If you're taking notes this morning, I want to draw your attention to three items that appear on your bulletin. Number one is this. Apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ, we were spiritually dead. Remember I said that what this text does this morning is it brings us who know Jesus Christ savingly into contact with what it is that we've been saved from. But if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ savingly, our text this morning is your current state. It is your present state. Apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ, we are spiritually dead. Paul opens chapter 2 with the statement, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. I want to pause right there for just a few brief moments. Let's deal with that text. I think there is perhaps no clearer picture of man in his sin apart from this right here in the entirety of Scripture. Paul's words here, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins, they are sweeping words, comprehensive words, absolute words, devastating words. Paul is saying that the Ephesians, before they came to know Christ savingly, they weren't just in danger of death, they were presently dead. They were in a state of present death. I think if you were to stop and ask the average person on the street, what is the general condition of human nature? You'd probably get one of the three following responses. So let's take ourselves here. It's Saturday afternoon. Uh, we're, we're doing some window shopping downtown Cape. And you just were to stop the random average person on the side of uh, the street and ask them the question, what is the general condition of human nature? I think you'd get one of the following three responses, potentially a slight variation in one of them. I think you would either get this response, man is basically good. Man is basically good. He, he may not be as good as he could be. He's definitely not perfect, but he's good nonetheless. Some people would tell you that. Others would tell you that man is sick. Man is sick, he's flawed and he's not well, but yet the prognosis isn't hopeless. Man is sick. And then others might tell you, maybe using some different language, man is dead. He's not just in the hospital spiritually, but he's in the morgue. You see, man's basic trouble is being out of harmony, not with people or his environment, but rather being out of harmony with his creator. His principal problem is is not that he can't make meaningful relationships with other human beings, but rather that he does not have a right relationship with God from whom he is alienated by his sin. Paul's going to talk about that alienation in chapter 4. Our sin alienates us from God outside of Christ. What does it mean to be spiritually dead? 
Paul says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. What does it mean to be spiritually dead? Well, death by definition means the absence of life. Spiritual death means to be separated from God. And the prophet Isaiah said that in Isaiah 59 verse 2. He said, your, your iniquities or your sins, they have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Our sin separates us from God. To be spiritually dead means to be separated. It means that apart from Christ, a person can't do anything to please God. As a, as a result of the fall, sinners are unable to make a single move towards God, to think, to think a single glorifying thought about God, to correctly respond to God, save God step in and bring a new regenerated heart. Save God step in and bring new spiritual life. There is nothing that we can do in our sin, in and of ourselves, to gain a right relationship, to acquire a right relationship with a thrice holy God. You see, this reality, being dead in our trespasses and sins, this reality isn't confined to the heathen or that segment of society that appears to have no moral compass. Rather, it applies to all humanity. Apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ, all men are spiritually dead. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the consequences of sin is death. It's what, Jesus, or it's what God told Adam and Eve in the garden when he said, surely if you eat of it, you will die. That wasn't a joke. You know, we sometimes as parents threaten our children, if you, then I will. If you, then I will. And then they do it and we don't. Maybe, maybe I hope I'm not the only one who's struggled with that, being inconsistent. God's never inconsistent. When God says, surely if you eat of it, you will die. When you eat of it, you die. And as Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, not only did it bring spiritual death, but it also brought physical death. Death is the result of sin. This is perhaps one of the most difficult truths in all of Scripture for people to really wrestle with and grapple with. It's a hard pill to swallow that man in his spiritually dead state is unable to know God personally and cannot do anything about his spiritually dead condition on his own. That's hard. We want to do something. We want to work. We want to add something to the equation. But dead people don't do anything. They're lifeless. Matter of fact, one of the first indications of physical death is the body's inability to respond to stimulus. A dead person no longer responds to light, to sound, to smell, to taste, to pain, or anything else. Totally insensitive. Some of us are totally insensitive when we're living. Paul here says that a spiritually dead person is totally insensitive to any spiritual stimuli. We're absolutely powerless, helpless, unable incapable to think, to feel, to will anything that has to do with God, anything for God, anything that's pleasing to God, anything that's honorable to God. You see, the unbeliever isn't sick, he's dead. He doesn't need resuscitation, he needs a resurrection, which is precisely the point that Paul is going to make in our text here. You see, if you go back to the end of chapter 1, what it is that Paul brings us face to face with is the the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe. And that power, first of all, has raised Jesus Christ from the dead. 
What Paul is going to show us in chapter 2 is that it is that same immeasurable power that takes spiritually dead men and women and raises them to new life. That's where Paul's taking us here. We don't just need resuscitation. We need a resurrection from spiritual death. The story was once told of an open-air preacher who was sharing the gospel when a thoughtless young youth yelled out, You tell us about the burden of sin, but I feel none. He proudly added, how much does sin weigh anyway? Ten pounds? Eighty pounds? The preacher answered, tell me, if I put a 400-pound weight on the chest of a dead man, will he feel it? No, because he's dead, answered the youth. And the preacher responded, and the man who feels no load of his sin is dead spiritually. So let me ask you this question. Do you feel load, the load of your sin? Not carrying what you're not supposed to carry. Jesus has taken our sin. But do you carry it in the sense that there is continual repentance, a continual sorrow over your sin? Not because of the consequences that your sin brings about, but because our sin sets itself up as an affront to the holiness of God. Does that burden our soul? Does it burden our heart? If not, then it is possible that we could be like the dead man with a 400-pound weight on his chest. He feels not the load. It's important to note that we don't become spiritually dead because we sin. We don't become spiritually dead when we sin. In other words, committing sinful acts doesn't make us sinners. We commit sinful acts because we are sinners. That's not just a play on words. That's a distinction that is theologically critical to a biblical understanding of our sinful nature. We don't become sinners when we sin. We're sinners by nature, by birth. David said it this way in Psalm 51. He said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my sin did my mother conceive me. Seven chapters later in Psalm 58, David said it this way. He said, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. You see, we are born under the curse of sin. We are born in sin, physically alive, but spiritually dead. We need to be made spiritually alive, to be born again. Nicodemus. We need to be born again. We're born physically alive, but spiritually dead. Such that you could say that apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ, we are walking dead men or walking dead women. Yes, the heart is beating. Yes, the lungs are taking in and expending oxygen. Yes, there may be some youthfulness and vitality, even some excitement and vigor for life. But when it comes to what matters most, namely our souls, if we don't know Jesus Christ savingly, we're spiritually dead. Walking dead men. Matter of fact, Paul used that exact same language in 1 Timothy 5, 6. Dead even while they live. You see, anthropologists, that's the the arm of science that studies the human race. Anthropologists tell us that we as a people are getting better. They they tell us that we've come so far from our primitive beginnings. That's not the same picture. It's not the same story that God's Word tells us. You see, God's Word tells us not of a physical and moral and spiritual ascent of the human race, but rather of an ever-increasing downward spiral. Let's turn the news on. 
Paul says that the cause of our spiritual death is our trespasses and sins. Of course, we're born that way. We don't become sinners when we trespass God's law, when we sin and violate God's law. We're born that way, but that's the cause of our spiritual death is our trespasses and sins. Notice both of those are plural. Indicates that our sinful rebellion is continuous apart from Christ. The Greek word translated trespasses there has the idea of a deviation from the straight and narrow path or stepping over the boundary. You see, each one of us is born with a a natural inclination to challenge God's boundaries. In other words, we are born rebels. We're born with a natural disposition, a natural inclination, a natural bent, so to speak, to challenge God's boundaries, to trespass. The word translated sins, it's the Greek word hamartia. It's borrowed from the world of archery. Carries the idea of missing the mark or falling short of the target. Later on, it came to mean missing or falling short of any goal, standard, or purpose. You see sins there in your Bible. Trespasses and sins. Sins is inclusive of any thought, desire, word, or action that fails to glorify God. So what that means is, when Paul says you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in our spiritually dead state, separated from God, we were both rebels and failures. Born that way. Born into sin. See, from a human standpoint, it might appear as though people can do good. And there is, humanly speaking, some good that takes place from those who don't know Christ. But from God's perspective... We've all become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. You see, the fact that all men apart from God are dead in their trespasses and sins, that doesn't mean that every person is equally corrupt and equally wicked. Twenty corpses on the battlefield might be in various stages of decay, but they are all uniformly dead. See, death manifests itself in many different forms and degrees, but death itself has no degrees. Sin manifests itself in many different forms and in many different degrees, but the state of sin has no degrees. Here's what that means. It means that the good, helpful, kind, considerate, self-giving person needs salvation just as much as the multiple murderer on death row. They need Jesus Christ's great salvation equally. The person who's a good parent, a loving spouse, an honest worker, needs Jesus Christ to save them from the eternal condemnation of hell just as much as the skid row drunk or the heartless terrorist. See, they don't lead equally sinful lives, but they are equally in the state of sin, equally separated from God. Apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. That was either your previous, true of your previous, Self, or that is true of your present self if you don't know Jesus Christ. Number two on your outline. Apart from the saving work of Christ, we are utterly depraved. Apart from the saving work of Christ, we are utterly depraved. Let me draw your attention to the beginning of verse 2 through about the middle of verse 3. Paul says, In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. All is comprehensive, by the way. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. So here in verse 2, what Paul does is he further explains the life of the Ephesian believers before they came to Christ. 
He says, in which you once walked. Now that connects back to verse 1, obviously. Paul said you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And then he goes on in verse 2. says, in which you once walked. The use of walk here has the idea of a habitual way or a direction in life. We might say a lifestyle. Before we came to Christ, sin was our lifestyle because sin was our master. It was our habitual way, our direction in life. We ordered our behavior within the sphere of trespasses and sins. See, all unbelievers, and if we know Christ, this was true of us, all unbelievers are in a state of bondage or enslavement to the power of sin. I mean, Jesus said this in John chapter 8. He said, truly, truly. By the way, anytime Jesus says truly, truly, that ought to make your ears perk up. He's saying really, really, or get this, get this, or don't miss this, don't miss this. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. You see, pre-conversion, that was true of us. We practiced sin. We loved sin. Anyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Enslavement or bondage has the idea of confinement. See, apart from Christ, a lost person is confined to their sin. Try as they might, struggle as they might, fight as they might, they can't shake it. And neither could we. Every thought, every intention, every action, every word is sin for a person that doesn't know Christ savingly. Let me just pause right there. That's weighty. Every thought, every action, every desire, every inclination, every deed, every word, sin. How is that? How is that, you ask? It's because apart from a heart that's been regenerated, every thought of the mind, every intention of the heart, and every action in the flesh, and every word that proceeds from the mouth is not carried out with the end of the glory of God. And that is the very definition of sin. Every thought, every action, every intention, every inclination, every desire of the will, every word that rolls off the tongue, because it's not aimed at glorifying, magnifying, honoring, extolling, making much of God, it's sin. Because not glorifying, not honoring, not extolling, not magnifying God is the definition of sin. See, man needs a new heart, not just a new start. It needs a new life, not just turning over of a new leaf. A resurrection, not a reformation. No one can live a life for God until he first receives new life from God. No one can live a life for God until he or she first receives new life from God. Save God, step in and regenerate a dead, cold heart. No one can overcome his or her sinful, spiritually dead nature. Now, what Paul's going to do in our text here is he's going to give us some color to our spiritual nature. He's going to help define what, what does it look like to be dead in trespasses and sins. Let me draw your attention here. Paul says, number one, we walked according to the age or the course of this world. He says, you once walked following the course or following the age of this world. In your Bible there, the word age, age of this world, or the word course, course of this world, it's the Greek word ion. It refers to the ethical or moral system of this world. Paul used the exact same word in uh, Romans 12, 2, when he said, don't be conformed to this ion. Don't be conformed to this world. 
You see, the age or the course of this world, it includes all the floating mass of thoughts and opinions and maxims and speculations and hopes and impulses and aims and aspirations that are at any time present and operative in the world. The goal of this present world, and we were a part of that at one time if we know Christ savingly, The goal of this present world is self-glory, self-fulfillment, self-indulgence, self-satisfaction, and every other form of self-serving. To walk. Paul said we walked according to the age or the course of this world. To walk has the idea of moving about freely without care or concern, feeling perfectly at home, being in complete harmony with the thoughts and the attitudes and the actions of those who are hostile toward God. Paul is saying that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we were controlled by the values and the attitudes of this sin-riddled world. Even as believers, I think there's a point of application here. Even as believers, we need to be ever mindful of the fact that this present world system is constantly trying to press us into its godless mold. Just, just for a sticky thought here, I, I think about that, that Plato contraption that many of you probably presently have in your home, where you you take the Play-Doh out of the canister and you shove that massive smelly dough in in that little thing, and it's got a handle on it, and you pull the handle down, and it extrudes or it pushes the Play-Doh out into a particular form or a shape. That's the the picture I have in my mind here of Romans 12, 2, when Paul says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This world, believers, wants to press you into its godless mold. You need to be mindful of that. And it comes at you by way of television. It comes at you by way of, of, of article. It comes at you by way of, of movie and Hollywood. And at the checkout aisle, when you're standing there looking at the, the, the headlines of this paper or that paper or this magazine or that magazine, it comes to you in legislation. It's coming at us. We need to be mindful of that. Secondly, Paul says, we once walked according to the principles of Satan. He says, you once followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience. What does the prince of the power of the air mean? Power of the air. I had a lady a few weeks ago ask me in the lobby, what what does that mean? That he is the prince of the power of the air. That simply refers to the where of Satan's present domain. Satan's realm or his theater, so to speak, is this world. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul refers to Satan as the God of this world. Absolutely lowercase g, the God of this world. He said that the God of this world, which is the word ion, by the way, translated course or age here in our text, the God of this ion, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You see, Satan, this side of eternity, though he is like a leashed dog, He controls the ideologies, the opinions, the hopes, the aims, and the goals of this current world. He is behind a lot of the systems of philosophy and psychology and education and sociology and ethics and so on and so forth. But I think his greatest sphere of influence is that of the realm of false teaching, false religion. I think that Satan is much more content to sit right there than he is to influence in any other way. there, There are numerous... Men standing in pulpits this morning spousing theology that is man-centered. Jesus never said, have your best life now. He said, that's to come. 
He said, die, take up your cross and follow me. It's not going to be easy. The birds of the air, they, they have nests. The foxes of the ground, they have holes. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. In other words, interpretation, do you really want to follow me? Best life is to come. That's what we're looking forward to. That's the, that's the resurrection of this flesh. When we get glorious new bodies, freed once and for all from the presence of sin. We've already in Christ been freed from its power and its penalty. We're looking forward to the day when we take on new resurrected bodies and we are once and for all freed from the presence of sin. That's your best life now. Because it's a life of worship that is unencumbered, uninhibited by sin. See, Satan is called the God of this world. He's called God in the sense that he's deluded his followers to serve him as if he were one. Paul is saying that in our unconverted, spiritually dead state, we were under the dominion of Satan and ruled by our father, the devil. Paul also refers to Satan as the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. I mean, there's a little bit of play on words that's taking place here, a little bit of contrast taking place in the mind of Paul. Look back at chapter 1, verse 19. Paul speaks of the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe, according to the, here's the word I want you to get, according to the working, it's that Greek word energia, it's where we get our word energy, according to the working of God's great might. Look at the word that Paul uses here, speaking about Satan, in chapter 2, verse 2. He refers to Satan as the spirit that is now at work. That's energia in the sons of disobedience. You see, just as the power of God is presently operative in the life of believers, so the power of Satan is presently operative, working in the lives of unbelievers. And he is relentless in his pursuit, by the way. Remember, he's a deceiver, a liar, a murderer. He's relentless in his pursuit. Remember when God asked Job in Job 1-7, from where have you come, Satan? And Satan replies, he says, from, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. He just has this idea of relentlessness. He's like a leash dog. He's not omnipresent. But he does influence and carry power. Notice that Paul also refers to the lost as the sons of disobedience. Remember this? this just think of the frame here, okay? I put your picture in it. This was us. This was us. Sons of disobedience. Disobedience carries the idea of disbelief, obstinacy, rebellion. Reflects the attitude of willful, perverse disbelief and a refusal to comply with authority. The picture here is, is of a person who, because of their unbelief, can't be persuaded and therefore remains non-compliant. Sons of disobedience, non-compliant. And Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 8. He says, the mind that is, that, is, that is set on the flesh, it's hostile towards God. It does not submit to God's law. Interpretation, non-compliance. It doesn't submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Thirdly, Paul says that we walked according to the lusts of the flesh and of the mind. Paul says we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. That word passions or lusts, there in your Bible. It's the Greek word epithumia. 
refers to strong desires, longings, or even cravings, especially for that which is forbidden. Remember, we're rebels by birth. We, we are born with a predisposition, an inclination, a bent to step over the boundaries, to challenge God's authority. Epithumia here, passions or lusts, sometimes translated desires, longings, cravings, especially for that which is forbidden. James uses the word in James chapter 1. He says, each person is tempted. I think about a fish here, okay, that sparkly little lure there in the water. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. It's the word epithumia. Strong desires. See, left to ourselves, instead of gaining mastery over our evil desires, they overcome us and dominate our lives outside of Christ. Paul notes the two places that their sinful desires run their course. He says the body or the flesh, look at your Bible there, and the mind. The flesh refers to the totally depraved, fallen nature that we were all born with. Remember, why does a sinner behave like a sinner? Because he has the nature of a sinner. The flesh always, without exception, wants to gratify self. The flesh always, without exception, wants to gratify self. You need to be mindful of that, even as a believer. The flesh longs and craves that which is contrary to the word and will of God. You think about Paul in Romans chapter 7. Some people think that Paul is an unconverted man in Romans chapter 7, talking about his struggle against his desires as a non-Christian. I think Paul is absolutely a converted man in Romans 7 when he says, why do I do the very things I don't want to do? Those things I don't want to do, I find myself doing, and those things I don't want to do, those are the things that I do. And he says, wretched man am I, who can save me from this body of death? But thanks be to God who gives me the victory in Jesus Christ. Hey, non-converted people don't talk like that, by the way. I mean, those, those concepts, I don't mean to be trite, but those concepts aren't there. To live according to the flesh is to be ruled by its selfish desires and rash impulses. But not only is it the flesh that's dominated by sin, it's the mind also that's fallen and corrupt. See, the mind is that faculty of thought and understanding, especially as it pertains to morality. The mind is what guides and directs our conduct. In counseling, I oftentimes tell people, you do what you do because you think what you think. Think about that for a minute. Why did you speak the way you spoke? Why did you do what you did? Because you thought a particular way. Sin is always premeditated. Before sin is, is fleshed out, it's conceived right here between our ears. You do what you do because you think what you think. That's why Paul says, Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your what? Your mind. Your mind. Now, Paul's going to tell us in Ephesians chapter 4, and he says the same thing in Colossians chapter 3. He says, we need to put off the old man with its sinful desires and to put on that which pleases Christ. But the, overall, the overwhelming emphasis of Scripture is to be re- renewed by your mind. How does a young man keep his way pure? By, by living according to God's word, I've hidden your word in my what? Heart? Yeah, my heart, my mind, I've, I've hidden it inside of me. In other words, think about meat. We, we, we marinate meat for its flavor. We need to marinate our hearts and our minds in, the, in God's word. You do what you do because you think what you think. Right thoughts equals right actions. 
Godly thoughts equals godly actions. There's a reason that Paul t- tells us in uh, Philippians chapter 4. He says, if there's anything praiseworthy, anything excellent, anything noble, anything righteous, anything that's, that's commendable, think about these things. Your mind. You do what you do because you think what you think. Apart from the saving work of Christ, a person does whatever their flesh wishes and whatever their minds imagine. What's Paul describing here? He says that we once walked according to the course of this world, we once walked according to the principles of Satan, and we once walked according to the lust of the flesh and of the mind. What's Paul describing here? What Paul's describing here is our utterly depraved nature. Theologically, we refer to this as the doctrine of total depravity or utter depravity. What does that mean? What does the doctrine of total depravity mean? Before I give you some definition, let me tell you first what it doesn't mean. Total depravity doesn't mean that a lost person is as sinful or as wicked as they could be if God were to remove his his restraining grace, his common grace. God's restraining common grace is operative in both the lives of believers and in non-believers. I mean, Jesus said that, that even lost sinners do good to others and they do good to their children. But here's the caveat. They can't do anything good, spiritually good, to please God. So total depravity doesn't mean that we're as wicked or sinful as we could be. Total depravity means this. It means that every human faculty, that is, every part of our being, get this, our mind, our wills, our emotions, our desires, the heart, the affections, the mouth, the flesh, we could keep going on. Every part of the fabric of our being has been marred and tainted by sin. No part of our life is exempt from the, debil- from the debilitating effects of sin. Someone once said this, if sin were blue, we'd be all blue. If sin were blue, we'd be blue all over. Various parts of us would be dark blue, other parts lighter blue, but every single part of us without exception would be blue in one shade or another. Remember, there's, there's varying degrees of decay of sinfulness, but there are not varying degrees of the state of sinfulness or the state of spiritual deadness. Total depravity doesn't mean that a person is as bad or wicked as they could be. God's restraining common grace is even operative in the life of a non-believer. The sun rises and the rain falls both on the righteous and on the unrighteous. It just means that every human faculty without exception has been marred and tainted by the fall. To be totally depraved means that in our sin we're incapable of doing anything good to merit salvation or to meet the, re- the righteous standards of God's holiness. See, sin enslaves us. Hey, Paul's, Paul's picture here is that of a, of, a, of a man, a corpse, wrapped around and around and around with strong, unyielding chains such that it is impossible for him to do anything to initiate his own salvation. You see, that's a God-centered theology. A theology that glorifies man is a theology that we need to be careful with, speculative of. Theology that honors and glorifies God is the biblical theology. Paul said, none are righteous, no, not one. No one understands 
No one seeks after God. All, have, all is a comprehensive word, by the way. All have turned aside. Together they've all become worthless. No one does good, not even one. But yet at times, even in our lostness, we would say, you haven't seen this one yet. I'm quite a gem. None are good. Spurgeon once said, he who doubts human depravity would do well to study himself. Apart from the saving work of Christ, we are utterly depraved. We've got just a few minutes left. Let me turn your attention to number three on your outline. Apart from the saving work of Christ, we are eternally doomed. Apart from the saving work of Christ, we're spiritually dead, we're utterly or totally depraved, and then lastly, we are eternally doomed. Let me draw your attention to this last phrase of verse 3, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Suffice it to say that the doctrine of God's wrath is not a popular doctrine. It's not a popular subject matter. As a matter of fact, our culture, and unfortunately many of our churches, have scrubbed God of any semblance of wrath and instead have created a God in their own image. Everyone wants a God who's loving, tolerant, and kind. We don't have a problem with a God who makes no issue with our sin and lets us do as we please. The problem is that's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God that Isaiah stood before when he said, Woe is me! I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyeballs have seen the king. That's a God who confronts us with our sin. And for our own good. You see, by definition, good news isn't good news unless there's bad news. Verses 1 through 3. Here in Ephesians chapter 1, this is bad news. And if it stood alone or if it stood by itself, it would leave us hopeless. There's good news, friends. God's going to step in in verse 4. See, the world doesn't take the wrath of God seriously because it doesn't take sin seriously. But if man's sin problem is as bad as the Bible portrays it, and if God's holiness is as glorious as the Bible portrays it, then there isn't a more just or reasonable response from God than the upholding of His righteousness as displayed in His wrath. The word wrath here in verse 3, it's the Greek word orge, can be translated fierce anger or or indignation or vengeance. The, The original root word has the idea of growing ripe, Think about a fruit on a vine, growing ripe. Friends, I think we need to be clear about the fact that God has a settled opposition towards sin. But the picture here is of God's gradually intensifying hostility towards our sin. You see, the doctrine of God's wrath, it doesn't mean that God merely gets angry from time to time and he spouts out or he lashes out in anger and then he goes on and he forgets about it. He doesn't just have a little temper tantrum, a divine temper tantrum. Rather, it's his inevitable growing opposition to everything that sets itself up against his holiness and his righteousness. And there is both a present aspect to the wrath of God and there's a future aspect to the wrath of God. Romans chapter 1 is the present aspect of God's wrath. When we suppress the truth of God, the clear truth of God in our unrighteousness, then there are those four terrifying words in Romans 1. And so God gave them over I heard a pastor say one time, the most fe- and this is a bit subjective, but the most fearful words are God gave them over to. The thing that we ought to fear in life, and again, this is speculative, but the thing that we are uh, subjective, but the thing that we ought to fear in life the most is God giving us what we want in our sin. 
Because there's a sense in which, in Romans chapter 1, God says, okay, have it your way. And what you see in the rest of chapter 1 is this downward spiral. It's not pretty. There's a darkening of heart and understanding. There's rampant idolatry. There's all manner of perversion and misuse of the body. And there's a castaway mind that chases after unrighteousness. A calloused heart. I mean, there is just a downward spiral in Romans chapter 1. That's the present aspect of God's wrath. Well, there's a future element to God's wrath, too. That's Romans chapter 2. Paul says, Do you suppose, O man, that you will escape the judgment of God, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself for the day when God's wrath is revealed in his righteous judgment. I have the picture in my mind of of two cinder blocks. Take a two-by-four and set it on the two cinder blocks. And then just start stacking bricks on the middle of that two-by-four. And after you get a little bit of weight on that two-by-four right here, it's going to begin to flex under the weight of those bricks. And it comes to a point where it snaps in two. That's the picture I have in my mind of Romans chapter 2. Storing up wrath for the day of God's righteous judgment. And we should not think that that God should respond in any other way to our sin than to uphold his righteousness, to uphold his justice, to uphold his holiness. If he did not do those things, he would be less than God and not worthy of your worship. That's not the God of the Bible. Most of the world thinks that we're all God's children. We're all God's children, right? No matter what you believe or who you ascribe ascribe glory to, what deity you bow to, we're all God's children. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus in John chapter 3 said, Whoever believes in me is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in me is condemned already. You see, apart from reconciliation with God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, every person by nature, by birth, is an object of God's wrath. And just to ensure just to ensure that no one might conclude that there were any to whom these words did not apply, Paul adds this little phrase, like the rest of mankind. No one is born a Christian. No one is a Christian by proxy or association to another Christian. I can't tell you how many times I've shared the gospel with young men who, who say, yeah, I'm a Christian, my grandma was a Christian, and my, and my daddy was a Christian, and my great-grandpa uh, was a Christian. And it's like, well, that's, that's great, but what about you? What about your soul? You are not a Christian. First, you're not born a Christian. You've got to cross over from death to life. That's John 5, 24. Truly, truly. There's another one, by the way. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone believes in me, hears these words that, of mine, he will not come into condemnation. He's crossed over from death to life. There's got to be a crossing over from death to life. Okay? But we are not a Christian because of our proxy to another Christian or because of our association or closeness to another Christian, the only way that we can become Christians is by proxy to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But yet so many are content to just live for today. J.C. Ryle once said, Surely none are so crazy as those who are content to live life unprepared to die. It's going to be on your epitaph. Surely none are as crazy as those who, are, who live content, unprepared to die. So Paul's dismantled any saving hope in and of ourselves here. 
Because he wants to present us with the real power for salvation, which is God's glorious grace found in Jesus Christ. You see, just when all hope seemed lost, Paul burst forth exclaiming in verse 4, look at your Bible, here's where we are next week. He says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love for which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together in Christ or alive together with Christ. That's resurrection language. The same immeasurable power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the same immeasurably great power that raises dead men and dead women to new life in Christ. And so the question I have is, do you know him? Do you know him? Do you know Christ savingly? Dead in transgressions, yes. Dead in sin, yes. But God performs resurrections. He reaches down to the ruined, wretched sinners and he pulls them out of the graveyard of sin and death and he he calls them, come forth, just like Lazarus. And his voice quickens a once dead heart so that it springs to life and it runs toward the very God that it once ran away from. Do Do you know that God? Do you know him? Have you confessed? I love the... Lyrics of this hymn, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, that's total depravity. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Wash me, or I die. 